Welcome again, everybody, to Marine Covenant Church. My name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And um, if you have not been living under a rock, I think this might be one of the most traumatic uh, news weeks we've had in such a long, long time. I just think every day there's like something new that's just awful. And like you don't even have time to process what happened two weeks ago. And when I talk to my friends in different contexts, I mean, I feel like sometimes in Marin we're we're sheltered from a lot of it, but I talk to friends who are living in the middle of all this and the hurt and the anger and the trauma and then the frustration, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And it was interesting because I was listening and watching the news this week kind of through the lens of what Jeff preached last week about this idea of restoration and this idea that God is doing this thing in us. He is he is moving us towards this new life, this new world, this new heaven. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, I really strongly, strongly encourage you to go back from last week and listen to Jeff's sermon. And, uh, but all week I've been listening to how in the world do we live into all that God has for us while also living fully in this world. And it seems like, I don't know about you, but when I listen to the news, when I talk with people, everybody is just exhausted. There's like, what do we do? And most people just end up holding their hands and going, I guess there's nothing we can do. The world is just too fundamentally broken. But for those people um, who are really go-getters, they're like, no, there is something we can do. There is the way that we can change the world. And so we want to get after it. But if we're going to change the world, if we're going to be a part of the solution, if we're going to be a part of the restoring work that God has, then we need to think about, well, where did that problem start? It's an like age-old question, right? What came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, the broken humans or the broken system? And uh, up until um, basically the Renaissance, all of human history, everyone agreed that human beings were the dirtballs. Human beings had the problem. And whether you were a theologian, whether you were a king, uh, whether you were a philosopher, it was human beings that were the problem. But in the, in the Renaissance, uh, there was a, a philosopher named Rousseau, and he was kind of the beginning of this new way of thinking, of saying, actually, humans are actually pretty good. In fact, humans are either neutral or noble, and it's the system, it's the broken world that actually corrupts them. And uh, it's interesting because Rousseau's thinking has actually led to some interesting movements, right? From everything from the French Revolution to, Car uh, to Karl Marx to critical theory, right? Because if humans are good and the world is bad, how in the world do we deal with that? Well, what I think is interesting is when we come to look at Jesus, Jesus in his miraculous way always finds the most complex answers, the most complex solutions of how in the world do we live in this broken world while God is also at work in restoring this world. Because what's unique about the Christian story is it's not that what's, what's broken first. Is it humans who are broken or systems who are broken? Um, it's this idea that, gosh, human beings, which we know in the guts of our being, are valuable creations. We are made in the image of God. We have dignity and honor, and we know that intrinsically. And yet we also know that our flesh is flawed and that we're sinful and that we're rebellious people and that sin and rebellion causes death and destruction around us. And so if we want to be about the work that God has to do, then we need to be about making sure we start with what we can control first, which is ourselves. So the title of this morning's sermon is, is this, that in order to, to restore the broken world, restoring the broken world, it begins with restoring the broken me. And recognizing that we are broken and sinful people is not really culturally acceptable. If you ask all of your friends, are you a sinful, evil, broken person? Like, no, I'm a good person. So I get that this chafes with our cultural moment. Happy to have more conversation with you if you want to go have coffee or a meal and to continue to wrestle with this. But this morning, we're going to take a look at this biblical perspective of this idea that we are broken, 
But even though we're broken and sinful, that praise God that Jesus actually has a way to move us towards restoration. And in our very bodies, we actually know the process of restoration. We know that there's when we have a problem and then how to actually move towards the solution. So a, a simple uh, story is back in the good old days when I was doing youth ministry, I would take kids uh, to the snowboarding. And I thought I was a pretty good snowboard teacher. I would teach kids to be in control and how to keep their, you know, stay, uh, their, their, um, their edges in, into, the, yeah, into the snow. Well, there was this one kid, Ryan Ward, who just did not, not like listening to me. He knew what he was going to do, and he was tired of what I had to tell him. And so he's like, I am gonna, I'm going to do this thing. And so what he would do is he would just simply point his board straight down the hill, and he would go for a little bit and then fall. And then do it again, go a little bit and fall. Well, by the end of the day, he got better and better and better. So by the end of the day, he's just going straight down the hill. Now he has no skills. This is his first day ever doing it. And you know exactly what happens. By the end of the day, he gets to the bottom of the hill and he wipes out. But he doesn't just wipe out, he breaks his femur. Oh yeah. And here I am, like 25-year-old youth pastor, like, hey, what am I supposed to do when I have this kid with a broken femur? I mean, the whole thing was just a total nightmare. And, um, and so he goes, and we, are, we take him to the hospital, and he has to be transferred, and he has to have surgery. He's in a cast that goes all the way up, and, you know, we all signed it, and it's great. But it was very traumatic. I mean, you could just imagine this poor kid, this poor parent. I can't believe I still got to keep my job. Well, it's... In a situation like that, you know exactly what the problem is. You have a broken femur. Like, you know there is a problem. And it is such a giant bone. And when it's like protruding from your leg, you know there's something wrong, right? And so you know there's a problem. And because you know there's a problem, you're willing to do what it takes. And in order to do what it takes, right, he actually had to go to surgery. And they had to rebuild his leg back together. It was a dramatic thing, this poor kid. Now, and then after that, right, that's only part of it. You, you know there's a problem. You have to have surgery. But then there's this whole process of rehabilitation, Right? You don't just all of a sudden your, your bone is fixed. It takes forever. And because he was you know, a dumb 16-year-old, he's like, I don't need to listen to the doctors. He didn't need to listen to me. He didn't need to listen to doctors. And so this poor kid had a limp for like three years until he finally worked it all out. Because isn't God gracious that even when we're dumb like that, he still slowly will fix us as well. But that idea is exactly what we need to talk about. If we're going to talk about this idea of restoring a broken world, if it begins by restoring this broken me, we have to do that process in our inner life. We need to take a deep look inside and recognize that there is a problem. Like there's a problem in the world for sure, but there is actually a very true problem happening inside of you and happening inside of me. And once we acknowledge that problem, thankfully through Christ, he's given us the pathway through what it means to have surgery, which is the idea of repenting and believing, and ultimately to be rehabilitated so that we get to live, excuse me, live into the true identity that God has for us. All right, with all that being said, why don't you grab your Bible, and we're going to begin this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 3 is where we're going to begin. So this is where we begin. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, already a total bummer of a verse. But what we're going to do is that's where we need to start. We need to recognize, are we willing to take a look at what is happening inside of us? We are already dead to our transgressions and sin. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rulers of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. And so already, even back when, when, when Paul wrote this, they had no idea about systems, about systems theory, but they knew that there was these two-part problems. There's part of it that there's sin in you and there's these powers and principalities that are part of making the world just an awful place. And then I love Paul, he says, all of us, 
And what's so great, because he could say, you. And unfortunately, that's kind of what the church has like been known for, is that we are the good people, and we point our fingers at the bad people and say, you are the sinful people. You are the people that are deserving of death. And I love this really subtle thing that Paul does. He says, all of us. This problem is not a me problem. It's not a you problem. It is a we problem. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Boy, that's about as bad news as it gets. That is going to the doctor's office and finding the worst possible news. I know you came to church like, gosh, isn't this exciting? You are, by your very sin, are worthy of death and worthy of wrath. Your transgressions, what does he say? Gratifying your cravings and your flesh, following its desires and thoughts. But if you're honest and you're willing to look at your inner life, you know, I know, I mean, maybe you're better people than me, but I know that those, I am constantly tempted to satisfy my cravings and my desires. What's interesting is there's nothing inherently wrong with cravings or desires. We need food. We need intimacy. We need friendship. We need resources. We need power. Those are all things that we do need, but yet when we follow them to their logical conclusions, they just lead to death. So what's interesting, though, is it doesn't just lead to death. Is It actually changes the way our brains think. Um, one of the uh, commentaries that I was studying this week, he uh, said this way, the former life is marked by a misaligned reasoning process that causes people to do what the sinful nature sin- says. Sin causes a distortion of the mind. Isn't that interesting? And if you think about it, like, I don't know if, about you, but if you ever got through a nice little season of lying, right? When you just start lying and lying and lying and lying, you actually rewire your brain. And if you actually take a lie detector test, you could actually pass because you are actually believing these lies. And um, it, it is a wild thing. So the, the former life is marked by a mis, uh, misaligned reasoning process that causes people to do what the sinful nature says. Sin causes a distortion of the mind. Paul says later in Ephesians chapter 4, he says this, that sin, it's darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Gosh, we're still acknowledging the problem. Super bad news. I know. So this idea that sin, it breaks us in our very core of our being, and it actually changes our brains. It changes how we see the world. And it made me think, um, back uh, when I was in college, I took a philosophy one class. And I don't know if you were ever, ever familiar with this. It was Plato's Allegory of the Cave. And Plato's Allegory of the Cave, uh, it was written um, in his book, The Republic, uh, in chapter 7. And he tells the story. And so if you have the, this picture, this is basically what it is, is the way they were trying to frame and understand the world. Because all of us were trying to understand the world to make sense of it. Well, Plato painted this picture to explain the world. And this was it, that people are born as prisoners. And the prisoners are chained uh, to the back of this cave and they're, sh- and, they're forced- and they're facing the back of the cave. They don't see any natural light. They don't see any other peoples. All they see are these shadows that go back and forth. So before the entrance of the cave is a fire. And so when people would walk by with animals or with food or with harps or whatever, they would see these shadows. And because these prisoners have only seen the, sh- the, the shadows, that's all that they understand. That's how they understand reality. They don't actually know what a real dog is, what a real tree is. They don't even understand what real light is. And they've made an entire worldview based on the shadows that are up on the wall. And what happens is in the, in, the, in the allegory of the cave, one of the prisoners breaks free and he ends up going outside the cave. And he's like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. Like 
That thing that we saw, the shadow of the dog, what we thought was a dog, that's actually nothing. That's just a shadow. This is what a real dog is. This is what a real tree is. This is what a real fruit is. And then finally, this is what the sun actually is. And it actually gets to get a sense of what the real world is. And in Plato's world, he was telling that story as saying that, listen, philosophy and education are the things that are going to change, right? Because people since the beginning of time have been saying, what is the human problem? And so for Plato, he thought, gosh, if, if a philosopher could just go and understand and come back and explain to the people, they would know. And what's interesting is the, 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 person, the prisoner who broke free came back and tried to tell everybody that they were living in a fantasy world and in a false world, and they want to try to tell the real world, and they just would not understand and what I love is so much is, is Jesus. This is why Jesus is so incredible, because he actually takes all this to the next level. Because in Plato's world, one of the prisoners was able to break free. But in the Christian perspective, we are not able to break free of our own sin, of our, of the, of our own darkened thinking. And we actually need someone from the outside. And that is the story of Jesus. In John chapter 1, right, Jesus is the logos. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the true light. It's not a philosopher who goes out to understand the light. We can't do it. Our eyes are always darkened. So the true light, Jesus Christ, becomes a human being, comes to earth, comes to those of us in the back of the cave who only know sin, who only know the shadow version of intimacy and love and resources and power. We only know the shadow versions of that. And Jesus comes to tell us that. I love this passage. Uh, Paul says it a little more clearly in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1. Again, talking about the, he's talking to, this, these, philo, to these philosophers. In verse 20, he says this, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? And then I love it. He says, has not, God made the foolishness, has not God made foolishness the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, but God was pleased through the foolishness of what he preached to save those who believe. The Jews demanded a sign, and Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to both the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. It's such the ultimate Jesus juke. We are trying so hard to understand the world. And Jesus comes graciously to us and says, listen, you need to understand your problem. We need to acknowledge the problem that we were dead in sin. And for as much as we want to, to change the world, as much as we want to make the world a better place, as much as we want to bring God's grace and mercy, as much as we want to change the systems of injustice and oppression, none of that can happen unless we begin with Jesus. So the first thing is we have to acknowledge the problem. But then is the second thing. The second thing that we need is to recognize now we need the surgery. Just like my friend Ryan who busted up his femur, he's like, yep, my femur's broken. Well, he's gonna die unless he actually has surgery. So that was actually an easy move for him. But for us, we actually, are we willing to undergo the scalpel? Are we willing to undergo the surgery? And in the Christian language, we talk about this idea of repent and believe. Even at the end of that long passage that Jeff read last week from Acts, the, the conclusion is the, the human response is, that are we willing to repent, to turn from our old ways of thinking and to believe and acknowledge all that Christ has done? Because our personal sin actually leads to generational sin, to systems of sin, to complex situations that cause pain and harm to our relationship with God, to our relationship with others, to our relationship with the world around us. And so if we, if we long for systemic healing, we have to have a beginning point, which is to begin with us, right? To clean your room, to start on your side of the street. So this is the really, really bad news. You may not realize it, but you've been walking around with a deformed leg 
for your entire life. And because we're human beings and we're stubborn, we are happy to walk around with a, a, a limp forever and ever. And Jesus is simply saying, would you like to be made whole? To acknowledge your limp. And some of us need to have our legs rebroken so that we can then accept Christ and be a part of this rehabilitation process. A few weeks ago, um, I got to go to an open Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And um, I just think that the recovery community is one of the most incredible communities in the world. It's an active community in our church uh, and in Marin. And there's some people in our church too who are leaders in that, um, in, in that whole movement. And I got this big old book, the big book. Look at this thing, it's gigantic. And I'm slowly, slowly making my way through it. Um, but it is this incredible pr- uh, program. And uh, I've never been before. I just knew people who were around it. And so I actually got to go and sit and be in a meeting. And this is the way they began their meeting. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees or AA membership. We're self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to to stay sober and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Gosh, what a perfect um, mission statement. And when you go and you sit and you see people, that's it from every walk of life for this one thing, to stay sober and help others, alcoholics, achieve sobriety. And was, uh, the whole time I was like, whoa, this is church. And the reason why I realized this is because the big book here, Alcoholics Anonymous, basically started as a Christian formation experience. These guys were hardcore Christians who recognized that we have to identify our own sin, our own problems, our own brokenness, and then we're able to turn. And so this is the surgery, right? Like these are are the first um, four steps. To admit that you're powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. Come to believe that a power greater than yourselves could restore us to sanity. Make a decision to, to turn your will and your lives over to the care of God as you understand him. And then it begins the process. Make a searching and fearless moral inventory, right? And all the next steps are the rehabilitation process. And what's so incredible is Alcoholics Anonymous started as a Christian formation. And because for the sake of their mission, they took the Jesus-y language out so more and more people would have access to this. But we're the church. We get to be as Jesus-y as we want. So what if we actually recognize this, that surgery is what we needed, right? This, the passage in Ephesians go, begins with, but God, that God did this work of longing, of restoration. And so think of the steps this way, of repentance. In a similar way, are we willing to recognize that we are powerless over our sin and our sin nature? That our flesh has made our lives unmanageable? Are you tired of anger and hatred, inappropriate, shallow coping, broken friendships? Right? You have to just admit, are you, are you tired of those things? Step two, then come to believe that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, could actually restore us to new life. Step three, and make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of Jesus and to follow him on the path towards everlasting life. That's the good news of the gospel. 
We're so scared to recognize our own sin. But because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we don't need to be scared of sin. It's not like walking into a, 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 a doctor's office and getting some unknown diagnosis and no one knows how it's going to be cured. We have the cure. We get to take the brutal inventory and recognize the way that our flesh is crushing us, is crushing others. Our sin is making life unmanageable for us and those around us. Acknowledge that. And then we get to come to Jesus and Jesus, we hand our lives to him and we repent. And we, I love that, that we come to believe, sorry, what did I say here? And to make a decision to turn our will and lives over to the care of Jesus and to follow him on this path. So that's it. That, so we need to acknowledge um, our brokenness, to acknowledge our sin. That's the first pass if we're going to be on this path towards restoration. And then two, to repent and to believe. And if that's something that you did forever ago, Praise God. Maybe something that you should do again. The truth is, as followers of Christ, as we move towards Christ, it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian forever and ever like Al Wade or you're brand new to this whole thing. We daily need to repent and to believe, to confess our sins, to not let our flesh take any hold. And if that's something that you're new to or would like to, gosh, we have an incredible pastoral staff and any one of us would love to splurge our church's money on you to hear your story and to walk this life with you. All right, now here's the third part, rehabilitation. This is the hard part. I think back to my friend Ryan, leg was broken, got surgery, did not do the rehabilitation part right, and just limped forever and ever. But we want to do the rehabilitation thing right. So let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 2 and wrap up this part of the the message. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says this. But because of his great love for us, really quick, All this sin, all this death, right? It feels like bad news, bad news, bad news. But because of his great love, God's posture towards us, even in our sin, while we were sinful, while we were enemies with God, all those things, his love for us is what motivates God. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It was his work. You do not have to try hard. You do not have to do any of the work. This is a gift from God. It is by grace that you have been saved. I love that. Because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy. And there's two parts of our rehabilitation. And one is living into our new life, our new and our true life. When my friend Ryan broke his leg, his leg was actually fixed. His bone was actually strong. His muscles didn't work, right? But everything about his body should have worked. It's just that his muscles didn't quite catch up. And the first part of our restoration is that we have this new identity, right? This idea of mercy is that we have, that God has forgiven our sins. It's all been wiped away. And I love these passages of scripture um, that we've now been made alive in Christ. I'm just going to share a few of them with you. This is our new being. This is our beginning point of living our new life. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, 16. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. To put on this new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Colossians 3, verse 10. And I love this. this is, Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people about this new life. Acts chapter 5, 20. It's because of God's mercy that you have been saved And what I love is not just mercy. God didn't just wipe away our sins. But then he goes on and says, but it's by grace you have been saved. And it's interesting because 
growing up, everyone's like, cheap grace, cheap grace, you read Bonhoeffer, right? The whole thing is like, people just took advantage of grace. I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. But we actually live in a culture where there is no grace, where there is no mercy. It's actually a foreign concept. And we as Christians need to be leaders of embracing this grace and this mercy. And so what, what that means is not just that our sin has been wiped away, but that we've been given this brand new, excuse me, identity. And because we've been given this brand new identity, our life and our lifestyle should totally change in response. And so at the very end of this passage, um, I want to wrap up with two last things. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. This is how Paul summed up this thought. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves, but it is a gift from God. It's not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance to do. You see this idea of grace, if it was about works, then you could be righteous, you could be proud, you could point your fingers at people, say, look at all the work that I did and you suck because you have not done it. Well, we are so lost, we are so far lost in our sin that the only way that we are saved is by God's mercy and by God's grace. And so once we recognize it's a gift, we can't lord it over people. So this last part of rehabilitation is the stretching, right? We know that our leg works, but now we actually have to teach it to, to work. And it's the stretching, our gratitude, and it's the stretching of our guts. So if we recognize that grace is a gift from God, therefore there's no reason for us to boast, which means our entire posture should be one of gratitude. Gosh, that is, we, we are all about envy. Our culture celebrates envy and looking at other people and what we don't have, and then we want to punish other people. But as Christians who are formed by grace and mercy, we are people who are, are full of gratitude. We are so thankful for all the tiniest gifts, for all the greatest gifts, for our entire life being saved, for having a brand new identity in Christ. We are saved, new, adopted children of God. We have access to every spiritual blessing we have been restored, and now we need to live into that restoration. So one, we live into practice gratitude. And the second is this, that we stretch our guts. And uh, I just said the G word because old school pastors use that, but I've never fi figured that out, so I'm sorry about that. But this is what it means. Guts, living, actually doing the work of being who God made you to do. He says you're God's masterpiece. Think of this beautiful marble statue, and God's just chiseling away and making you this incredible masterpiece. So you have to submit to him to allow him for sanctification. And next week, Shelley is going to crush and teach us exactly how in the world to do that. We need to submit to God to allow him to keep forming us into his masterpiece, but then to actually do the good works that he has prepared for us in advance to do. So like I said at the very beginning, the world is broken. The systems are broken. Our neighbors are full of envy and strife and hatred and anger. And we're experiencing that maybe in our own life as followers of Christ, as restored people living into our true identity, God longs for us to be on the front end, to serve those around us, to begin the work of restoring ourselves and the broken systems and world in which we live. The bummer is we all want to do it through strength and power. And it seems like that's the easiest way, but Jesus is about the upside down kingdom. He's about meekness, about humility, about um, brokenness, about those who mourn. Those are the people who are blessed. And I love the, the parable that Jesus says, right? And the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the tiniest seed, but yet through it becomes the largest bush in the garden. And when we individually, imagine us as Marin Covenant, right? 450 of us. If we just committed 
to being on this path towards restoration, to love and serve Christ, to love and serve one another, to extend grace and gratitude, and to be the masterpieces that God has been, all of our spheres of influence will be different. And if Christians all over the world did that, then the world actually changes and that restoration happens. So as we wrap things up here, my prayer for you and my prayer for me is that we would not just shake our hands or our fists at this broken world. We wouldn't just watch the news with disgust or depression. We would see that as a sign that we live in a broken world, but have the humility that part of that brokenness is on us. And if we want to be restored, we have to recognize and acknowledge our own sin. We need to submit to the gracious hand of Christ to repent and to believe so that God can do the surgery he needs to do so that ultimately we can be rehabilitated to be wholehearted people, to not just be identified as daughters and sons of the king internally, but we would live that way in our individual lives and corporately so that the world may know him and love him and serve him forever. Amen and amen.